On Monday, April 3rd, 2017, Christopher Watkins and Tanya Gonzalez-Suarez showed up for their first day of work at Faultless Healthcare Linen. Starting a new job is almost always a day filled with nerves and anticipation, but Christopher and Tanya weren't going to their new job alone. Christopher and Tanya were newlyweds. They had each other, and they had known each other back when they were kids, but had drifted apart and had found each other again just about five years before this day. They were inseparable, and so it made a lot of sense that they would start a new job together. Before heading into the faultless facility, Tanya posted a photo on Facebook with the caption, It's our first day on the new job. About 520 feet away, also on Monday, April 3rd, a steam storage tank at the Loy Lang Box Company was being turned on. Just a few days before, it was noticed that the tank had been leaking, and so a repair had been scheduled for Monday afternoon. Of course, Christopher and Tanya knew nothing about the boiler being turned on, the repair it needed. They probably knew nothing about the Loy Lang Box Company at all. However, that morning, on their first day of work, that water boiler exploded with the force of approximately 350 pounds of TNT, launching it through the roof of the Loy Lang Box Company and landing 520 feet away at Faultless Healthcare Linen. Both Christopher Watkins and Tanya Gonzalez-Suarez were killed. Another man, Clifford Lee, was killed with them, and a fourth person, Kenneth Trentum, died in the initial explosion back at the Box Company. That's four people dead, almost two football fields apart, and it's just inconceivable that anybody would have been able to process what had just happened. Now, I think about this story all of the time, and the more that I think about it, the more upsetting it is. I mean, the whole thing is bullshit. Like, why? Why try anything ever? It's so profoundly unfair. And as much as I'm sad for Christopher and Tanya, I'm also really angry for them and for their families. Like, what sort of universe do we live in where you can show up to your first day of work and have a literal water boiler crash through a ceiling and kill you and the person that you love in an instant? And, th and there's just nothing that you can do to protect yourself from it. It's so tragic and so incredibly implausible that every person that I've told this story to has reacted with some sort of disbelief or, or maybe even laughter, which sounds horrible, but I get it. It's not because we don't recognize that this story is a real tragedy, but it's because we feel like deep down existentially that the message of the story is, at the end of the day, you can do everything right. And in the end, it can all go terribly wrong. And it can be tempting to, to hear this story and say, you know, f*** it, who cares anymore? It doesn't matter anyway. A, a plane could just crash into me tomorrow. But in my opinion, that would be the wrong lesson to take from this story. The story reminds us that the number of things that we control is vastly outnumbered by the things that we don't. It could be the weather, an illness, how someone feels about something or how they feel about you. And these are things that we don't control, even if we've tricked ourselves into thinking that we do. Okay, so do me a favor. 
don't go outside and set fire to the woods. Not yet, at least. Let's honor Christopher and Tanya and their story, their actions, by not being defeated by what ultimately happened to them. We have to accept that the world is chaotic and uninterested in what we want, and that's just kind of how it is. But once you've accepted that, once you understand that idea, then what comes next? Welcome back to Where There's Smoke, the show where we explore self-development through the lens of current events, pop culture, and experience. This week, we are exploring surrender. In a world where nothing is certain and so much is out of our control, what options do we really have? Should we fight? Do we give up? Or is there something else? My name is Brett Gaida. And I'm Nick Jaworski. Let's start the show. Gaius Plinius Secundus, a.k.a. Pliny the Elder, was a Roman military officer, philosopher, and author of Naturalis Historia, one of the earliest examples we have of an encyclopedic work. He is also attributed with the quote, home is where the heart is, which I think also makes him the godfather of needlepoint. Dude, that was lame. And I'm the king of lame. I dream about needlepoint. But I mention Pliny here for another quote of his. Translated from Latin, the full quote would be, This series of instances entangles unforeseen mortality, so that among these things, but one thing is in the least certain, that nothing certain exists, and that nothing is more pitiable or more presumptuous than man. Or, to put it into the needlepoint version, the only certainty is that nothing is certain. Now look, I get it may feel hard to take someone seriously when their name is Pliny the Elder. I mean, who else are your philosophical touch points, Brett? Freddy the Flute? Mr. McFeely? Captain Carl? Oh, actually, I really do miss Phil Hartman. Pee-wee, Captain Carl always remembers to wash his hands. A sailor travels to many lands, any place he pleases, and he always remembers to wash his hands so he don't get no diseases. Hmm, that feels oddly timely somehow. But I digress. Though the translation says man, Pliny is talking about humans. Pliny is having a pity party for silly humans and pointing out that something humans strived for in his time, namely certainty, was a lie. It wasn't a lie. It was an illusion. Ah, fair point. An illusion. The illusion of certainty. The illusion of security. The illusion. Okay, that's, that's enough, Brett. We get it. Oh, <laughs> sorry, I didn't even realize I was doing that. The illusion of certainty, the illusion of control. And while times have changed, human presumption is about the same. And though I think most of us get that 
logically, things like certainty, security, and control are often an illusion. Sorry, I just really wanted to get one more of those in. We often still fight and flail against that truth. Whenever we find ourselves in a situation where we lack control, there seems to be an impulse to fight it and just thrash about, like an animal caught in a trap, in the hopes that we can change the situation to what we want it to be. And it intuitively feels like it should work, and maybe sometimes it even does work. But I'd argue that, more often than not, the thrashing is just wasted sideways energy. It doesn't actually get you anywhere. Compare it to sinking into quicksand. It makes instinctual sense that trying to climb out and use your arms and legs to kick would be the best way to get out of something that you're sinking into. However, as the movies and Bear Grylls have shown us, that's just not true. And the reason these can actually kill people is not because they swallow you, it's because they just don't let you out of it. Quicksand is twice as dense as your body, so in theory it should be impossible to drown. But if you panic, you just get sucked in further, and you won't have a hope of getting out. So the more time and energy we spend fighting the things that we can't control, the more likely we are to get sucked into them. So all of that pushback, all of that thrashing, it doesn't just not help. It can make things worse. And what's nasty about this stuff is the more you fight it, the more it like pulls you in. Perhaps you wish that you didn't have a cold today. Or, hypothetically, maybe you wish that there wasn't some global generational event that was keeping you from doing so many of the things that you love, like going to concerts or restaurants or just seeing your friends. Hypothetically. Try as you might to fight against it, to wish that it was different. There's nothing you can do but surrender. And, just like with the quicksand, you might find that your chances of survival and happiness increase when you understand that. Really, the number one rule is keep calm, don't fight it. You know, the more you fight the thing, the more it's gonna pull you in. So just try and control your breathing and try and maneuver your chest onto the surface. Mark Nepo is a poet and philosopher who has taught in the field of spirituality for over 30 years. He often speaks about acceptance and surrender. And what particularly caught our eye is his words on not getting what we want. Mark writes, We are taught early on that to have an ambition and to work toward it is industrious and admirable. But he suggests that along the way, we often incubate a self-centeredness that breeds like a bacteria. We begin to have an expectation that we can will things to happen, that we have some right to control events. And with this comes a sense of entitlement, that we have a right to have things go our way, a right to get what we want. But that has never been how life has worked. And so Mark goes on to say that sooner or later, everyone will face not getting what they want. And how we respond to this unavoidable moment determines how much peace or agitation we will have in our life. 
Now, to be clear, this acceptance of what is does not mean that we become complacent or passive or resigned. If what is is the current or the flow of the situation you're in, I am not saying you have to go with the flow. You don't have to lie back and resign for it to have its way with you. But you have to accept that flow and work within the flow to decide what to do next. Like with the quicksand. Sheer force or strength will not loosen the grip of the quicksand. But if you understand and accept its flow, you will realize that you have to be patient. Slow down. Use small moves to loosen its grip and work your way slowly out of the situation, within its flow, within its nature. Author Elizabeth Gilbert posted something back in 2015 about surrender. She wrote, Surrender is what happens when you come to the end of your power. Surrender is what happens when none of your survival strategies work anymore and your playbook is out of pages. We will suggest at that point, anything you do in resistance of what is will just cause more agitation. It is only from a place of surrender, of letting go of what is out of your control, that you can step into peace and or the possibility of progress. Look, really at the end of the day, there are things that happen that remind us of the fact that there is so little we control. And it's moments like that, moments like this, that we should take the opportunity to find some element of serenity or peace or just general okayness. And there are a couple of ways to handle it. You can go outside, scream at the sky, or scream at your neighbor, or you could go on Twitter and rant and have no real positive impact on yourself or the world. Or you can surrender to the thing you can't control and find fulfillment and purpose through the things that you can and do control. Things like how you treat your partner or your children, or how you respond to your feelings, or even just how you treat yourself. And there are certain things that are always going to be good advice. And in this case, in a chaotic world, the real superpower right now is to recognize the things you can't change and the things that you can. And perhaps embarrassingly, very late into writing this episode, Brett and I remembered that there's already some pretty solid advice about all of this. So stop me if you've heard this one before. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. So don't panic. Definitely don't thrash. Just move deliberately and with purpose from the things you can't control to the things that you can control. Surrender to what is, and then, and only then, can you find out what can be.
Over the years, my brother, my mom, and I had conversations about what her acceptable minimum quality of life was. I'm not sure how many people have these kinds of conversations with their parents, but my mom told us, if either one of us were in a situation where we had to decide whether to pull the plug or not, we knew what my mom wanted and didn't want. We knew the quality of life that was acceptable to her and that which wasn't. Sometimes she told us gently, and other times she just got straight to the point. My mom literally told my brother once, if you have to put me into a nursing home, I prefer you just put a bullet in my brain. My mom was 74 years young when my brother and I took her to the hospital on Saturday, January 7th, 2017. We thought it would be pretty routine. It was not. Three days later, she had a code blue, almost died, and was unconscious in the ICU. My mom was in the ICU for two months and didn't get out of the hospital for a total of nine months. When we walked in on January 7th, she was fully independent, lived in her own condo, performed in a singing group, the Ambiance Singers, had fun with her friends, went to the theater with her 13-year-old granddaughter, and had sleepovers with her four-year-old grandson. When we wheeled her out of that hospital on October 16th, she could barely walk without assistance, had double vision, needed help eating, and maybe worst of all, at least emotionally, at some point during the multiple intubations and extubations, they tore one of my mom's vocal cords. This caused her voice to become gravelly and hard to hear. And my mom lost her ability to sing, one of the things she was most passionate about. I sing, partly because of my mom, and I know what it feels like to sing and feel connected with a deeper part of yourself and the world to have that expression, that connection. She lost that. And yet for all that my mom lost, she never lost her grit, her fight, her courage. That nine-month hospital visit was the longest, but it wasn't the last. Over two years, my mom was in and out of that damn hospital, sometimes for a few days, others for a few weeks, but she kept fighting. At the end of the second year, my mom was admitted to the hospital once again. Her health and strength dipped lower than it had ever been before. And at this point, considering our previous conversations about quality of life, I, I started to wonder why was she still fighting so hard? What was she holding on to? What were all of us holding on to? She was well below her desired quality of life, and as a matter of fact, it had gotten to the point where we were now looking for a suitable nursing home for my mom. And contrary to her very blunt instructions, none of us were loading a bullet into a chamber. So around that time, I, I just had to ask, why are you still fighting so hard? She acknowledged that she was well below her desired quality of life that she was exhausted, frustrated. But she said that she was still fighting for one reason. She wanted to see her grandkids grow up. My son, Radic, and my brother's daughter, Sydney. Then she got the news that she had moved into stage four 
of congestive heart failure. Her father, my grandfather, had died of that. My mom was a registered nurse. She knew what this diagnosis meant. She already knew that she was far past the quality of life she wanted. And now she also knew she wasn't going to see her grandkids grow up. Remember that quote from Elizabeth Gilbert? Surrender is what happens when you come to the end of your power. With this prognosis, my mom decided that she had come to the end of her power, that she was done fighting. She told us she was ready to die. She didn't want this to drag on. She didn't want to put us through that. She was also scared that what was next would be slow and painful. But most of all, she told us she was scared she would die alone. My mom didn't want to die alone. A couple of days after the diagnosis, the doctor came in to lay out the options for my mom. She gave us three. Option one, they keep doing what they're doing to extend her life the best they can. Option two, they reel back on some of the medicines and sort of let things take their course. And option three, they take her off all the treatment medications, which would accelerate her decline. But none of us could know what that would look like, and it would likely get pretty rough. As we sat there processing, something unexpected happened. After reviewing what we thought were all of the possible options for moving forward, almost like an afterthought, the doctor said something like, well, you would probably also be eligible for MAID, medical assistance in dying. And I remember my brain jarring. What? As she went on explaining it, I was still processing that first sentence because I didn't even realize it was legal in Canada. After the doctor left, I, I sat there with my mom, still a bit in shock, and I soon realized that she was having a similar experience. She also didn't know that medically-assisted death was an option. Now, her first reaction was, I didn't know either. I don't want to do that, but I didn't know. And though I couldn't fully process the feeling, I, I felt my mom needed to consider this option. And suddenly, I was in a conversation with my mom about ending her own life. It was intense, and I remember just saying that. I was, Mom, I, I know this is a very intense thing, and I, I can't even imagine how you feel, and I can barely say it, but I remember what you said to us, that you don't want to be in pain, and you don't want to die alone. And this would allow you to guarantee that. And we left it at that. The next morning, my brother went in to see her and called me while he was there. Having the option to control the end of her own life, my mom decided that was the choice she wanted to take. 
She didn't want this to drag out. And more than that, she wanted her family by her side when she left this life. The conversations after that were around how, when, and who my mom wanted there. Very surreal and at times intense. Do you want us to tell Elvie? Yeah. Uh, All the family. Okay. I looked for the gifts in the moment that we got to discuss death in a way that most people don't. I remember feeling blessed that there was nothing unsaid between my mom and I, nothing to rectify or regret. And I was grateful that we had 47 years of life together, that we really lived. I lost my dad when I was 18 years old and we missed out on so much. My mom and I, (laughs) we did not miss out. Our relationship went through so many phases and forms and we'd had a great life together. My mom was scheduled to die at 11 a.m. on Friday, February 8th. It is uh, an unexplainable emotion to know the time your mom will leave. I can't imagine what it was like for her. I know the days before felt really long for her. Once she had surrendered, decided to let go, she was ready to go. She had been fighting for so long. At 11 a.m., I was holding my mom's hand and talking to her as they injected medication into her arm. I had my forehead on her forehead, telling her that I was there, telling her that I loved her, telling her it was okay and she could go. And as I relive it, I'm... I'm overwhelmed with how courageous my mom was. The strength, the courage it took for her to surrender. The same strength she used to fight. And because of her fight, we had two more Christmases together. Because of her fight, she got to see her grandkids grow two years older. Because of her fight, we got to share more stories, spend more time, and in many ways, I think her passing was easier for all of us. My mom never quit, but she had the courage to surrender when it was time. And in that surrender, she didn't give up control. She took it back. And as hard as it was to say goodbye, I feel blessed that my mom was able to leave on her terms with her sons at her side, and her family surrounding her. About 15 minutes before the procedure, we took a final picture together. It is my mom, her two sons, her granddaughter, her grandson, and her daughter-in-law. You might feel that would be horrible to take a last picture, to know it is the last picture, but with all of the other emotions in the room, I remember there being this sense of serenity in that moment. My mom had been through so much. And every time I look at this photo, 
I'm looking at it right now. I am just so struck by the emotion on my mom's face. She, she looks happy. So listen to me, honey, while I say, how could you tell me that you're going away? Don't say that we must part. Don't break my aching heart. You know, I loved you so many years. I loved you night and day. How could you leave me? Can't you see my tears? Listen while I say. All right, everybody, it's time for undoubtedly your favorite part of the show, the credits. Where There's Smoke is still written and produced by Brett Guida and by me, Nick Jaworski. And look, we've been gone for a couple of years now, and we're worried that we won't be able to connect to all of our wonderful explorers around the world. People get new phones, they get new podcast apps, and they don't subscribe to the show. Well, the one thing you could do would be to reach out to a friend, to a family member, and just say, hey, Where Their Smoke is here, you know, even if they've never heard it before. Send them this episode or send them your favorite episode. Most podcast apps have a little share button that you can just click and send an episode directly to them. If you could do that right now, that would make a world of difference. We would love to connect with all of our friends, both old and new. If you would like to see the photo of Brett's mom and his family that he referenced at the end of Act 2, Please go to all of our social media accounts. That's Explore WTS at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. That's Explore WTS. Go check that out right now. Brett also wanted to give a special thank you to Carol Walker for providing the 2014 recording of his mom singing the song After You're Gone with the Ambient Singers. Additional music used in this episode is from Blue Dot Sessions and Kevin McLeod. And the WTS theme song was written and recorded by Des McKinney and remixed by yours truly. You know, after two years, it's, it's amazing how much support we still receive from explorers all over the world. And we just want to say thank you so much for thinking of us. It, it means a lot to us to know that this show has meant something to you. And we are just thrilled to be back. And if you guys can find it in your hearts to take me back, well, then I promise that every day I'll prove to you how much the show and how much my family means to me. Oh, Peter, of course we'll take you back. Oh, welcome back, buddy. We missed you so much. Thanks for listening. We love you. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>